today we are at one of the, the most well-known passages in the book of Acts. It is, it is the story of the conversion, the coming to Christ, of a Pharisee by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Uh, some of you who have been around the church have heard the story. Even if you've not been around the church, you've probably heard something about this story. And uh, my hope for us today uh, is that God would meet us as we look at this. Uh, and my aim uh, is to, to really look at what conversion is. Who's responsible for what? What, does, what is God's part? What is our part? What happened with Saul? Why was it so significant? What happens in us? So if you would, uh, not mind, if you're able to stand uh, as we read God and, and God's Word here in Acts chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1-19 through uh, 19 here. Verse 1, here we go. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly, a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias! And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from chief, chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, get this right here, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, uh, this is your word. Uh, this was your chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to, to us in this room. This is your chosen instrument. And God, what a man, what a criminal, what a, what a rough, tough man, what a hardened man that You brought to His knees in humility and used Him mightily 
to build your church, to bring the Gospel, the good news, life to us. Father, speak to us this morning. Set aside any preferences, any things that are, that are crowding our mind this morning so that we can hear Your Word clearly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. I often hear people say when they tell me their testimony, you know, my, my conversion story, my coming to Christ, that, that story that I kind of have with that, it's no Damascus Road experience. Have you ever heard anyone say that before? It's, it's not really a Damascus Road experience. It's not one of these kind of uh, uh, very polarizing stories of I was killing Christians and now I'm being persecuted by Christians. It's not one of those things. And I think a lot of times we can be apologetic that our we haven't has had as a dramatic of a, of, of a story, an encounter with Christ before. But here's what I know. If I were to do a survey around the room, and I were to make us raise our hands when I ask certain questions, here's, here's what we would see about this room today. That some of you grew up in a family that taught you the truths about Jesus. And it was good. And, and some of you, you, you followed Him since that day. Some of you grew up in those environments and you rebelled. And now maybe you're on your way back or maybe you're not quite there. Some of you, you've never really even heard the name of Jesus before. Like you're just starting to discover who Jesus is and the Holy Spirit is beginning to speak to you. Some of you have, 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 we have, a, we have a past, right? We have, we have, a, we have a, um, <laughs> we, we are seeing this morning differently because of the way that sin has impacted our life. Sin has impacted each of us in varying degrees, uh, both publicly and privately. And, and here we meet a man that kind of trumps all of our stories. A man that was killing God's people. And what we notice about this is kind of where the big idea was birthed about this sermon. And it's this, the Gospel is not limited by our depravity. So my, my hope for you in this room today is twofold. If I could, if I could kind of preemptively um, say what, I've, what I hope, what my prayerful uh, hope is that our responses would be to this sermon. I'm going to go ahead and lay that out there for us today. Uh, those of you that follow Christ in the room, um, I'm praying that joy and clarity would come through hearing God's Word and hearing the story of this broken, wounded man that bowed his knee to Jesus and served Him all the days of his life. And, and this new birth and worship would come out of that because you're more assured of what has happened inside of you. That's, that's one hope that I have. And others of you, you, you come in kind of resisting this morning. You, you kind of keep God at arm's length. And because we're in the Bible Belt, we don't really know where anyone is. That's one of the things I noticed about moving to the South. Is everywhere else I've lived, it's been a little more obvious. Folks that actually follow Jesus and folks that don't follow Jesus. In the South, we kind of just muddy it all up. And that's kind of why it's necessary for us to talk about what the Bible says about coming to Jesus this morning. So those of you that keep God at arm's length, you're kind of resisting uh, the, the call of God. Uh, my, my prayer for you has been that, that, that you might have new hope and maybe eternal security for the very first time in your life. Maybe you've spent your whole life just kind of wondering, yeah, maybe I'll deal with that God thing on down the road. And you, you try to be a moral person. You try to do the right thing. But we realize in the Bible that it's never enough. That, that the scales that we balance our life on are skewed because we're sinners. 
So my hope is that you might be brought to this place where you realize, hey, look, I know that I don't have it all together and I actually do need Jesus. He's not, like a, he's not a crutch for me, but He has to become my life. So my prayer is that we would, we would take a step in that direction. Those of you that, that maybe aren't Christ followers yet or that kind of keep Him at arm's length. So the uh, sermon is two parts here. The first part is this, what is conversion? We're going to look at the what, how, why of conversion. The second part is this, let's look at Saul's conversion, how he came to faith in Jesus. So let's go. Uh, what is conversion? I'm going to give you a definition uh, here. Uh, conversion is an act of God's mercy. So, so it's something that God does. It's something that God initiates. I'm reminded as I read this over and over in the Scriptures. It's something that God has to initiate that causes a repenting sinner who's been brought to life in regeneration to turn away from sin and turn toward God it's saving faith in Jesus. So I know that's kind of wordy. I'm going to unpack that because I find that really clear in Titus chapter 3, verses 4-7. through seven. So we're going to look at Titus and then we're going to get back to Acts. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Titus uh, chapter 3 and we're going to look at this uh, quickly here. Titus 3, verse 4. But when the, the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but but according to His own mercy. So His mercy is the currency that gives us salvation. By washing of regeneration, I'm going to talk about that word in a moment, and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He pours out on us richly through Jesus our Savior. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs. So we might become His family through this, according to the hope of eternal life. So, so, we, so let's talk about the why of conversion as we look at this real quick. So I find it really interesting that you and I tend to think that when, when, we, when, we, um, when we look for the reasons that God should save us, and we ask this question uh, nearly to everyone who uh, becomes a member at New City as we're learning your story, is, hey, you know, why should God save you? Why do you think God should, should give you grace? And typically, the road that people are tempted to go down is to look within. To look, to look at something within themselves. And so, we'd be, you know, well, I, you know, I, 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 you know I, I read the Bible, I pray, you know, I really serve and I try to be generous. And, and all of those things are great, but they're not, they're not the causative reason for God to save us. I find it so interesting that, that the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appears in Jesus And that's the currency of our salvation. It's not within anything within us. There's nothing in us that could be good enough to give us life in Christ. And that seems to be the thing that we think about a lot. We falsely assume that God is looking within each of us to give us new life. And He's not. He's looking within Himself. His goodness, His loving kindness that grants us that. So if, if, if salvation is not based on our ability to be righteous, then that means that we can and should actually believe and be certain of our salvation in Jesus. Uh, Jonathan Edwards said it like this, our confidence in our, in our salvation and our redemptive reality as Christians is built on a living relationship with grace. So, so, so let's just pause and think about that for a second. So you mean, Ryan, like, like God saves me and I don't have to do anything? And we kind of go down this road of like, oh, I can just live like hell then. I can just do whatever I want. 
Well, see, the thing is, when grace really grabs your life, that's not how your life turns out. It might be how you think about it initially, but, but God looks within Himself and it's because of His love that He comes and He meets with us. And then what happens from there, the how of conversion, this big $10 word, regeneration, that you've probably never heard anywhere else other than in the Bible. Regeneration, an act of cleansing where the Holy Spirit gives us a new genesis. So a lot of times we think that, that, that it's... That it's um, that it's our effort and it's our work that, that kind of fights our way to God. And we finally find Him. And when we find Him, we grab a hold of Him. And there is a response. But our response to God's grace and His offer of salvation is only because He's first met us. I mean, in the Scriptures right there, it says that, that by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the first thing that God does out of His loving kindness is He meets us with His Spirit. And He gives us a new genesis. He gives us a new beginning. He gives us a new heart. He has to work in us before we'll ever lay down our pride and surrender our lives to Jesus. And, and if you're contemplating that in here today, you're like, man, I'm, I'm just kind of considering this Jesus thing and I just don't really know where I'm at on this. I would say that the Holy Spirit is already working in your life. Because if the Holy Spirit isn't already working in your life, you would have no interest in Jesus. You have no interest in them at all. And so I think our, our pride can sometimes kick against that. What do you mean like God has to first come to me? It's because we're so fallen and marred by sin. Our lives are such a disaster. We can't even see it. God has to do the first work in us. This is why when Jesus is with uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3, He says, hey, look, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus' mind kind of goes through, you mean I've got to get back in the womb? Like, How am I going to do that? Well, Nicodemus, it's not going to be of your work. It's going to be of my work. I've got to meet you, Nicodemus. John Chrysostom of, uh, of the, the early 4th uh, century uh, says, says it like this, For when a house is in a ruinous state, no one puts props under it, nor makes any addition to the old building. But you know what he does? He pulls it down to its foundation and he rebuilds a new house. So in our case, God has not repaired us, but He's made us new. God hasn't done a remodel on our hearts. If you're interested in Jesus today and your, your heart kind of cries out for the life that He gives that's not based on anything that we do, it's because He's rebuilding your heart. He's giving you a heart that can actually believe that, that can actually choose that. Titus, uh, Paul goes on in his letter to Titus to talk about this idea of renewal. Renewal is kind of the implications of regeneration. So, so, the, so the implication of regeneration brought about by God's Spirit. And, and notice what happens in that renewal. It's like all of salvation occurs in this. Listen, He pours it out through His Son, Jesus, so that being justified by His grace. So we're made right with God through this work that He does. And then we become heirs. So there's this family piece. I don't know about you, but, but when I hear about God's salvation, the part that really touches my heart is when I hear that I'm a son of God that I'm no longer a stranger, I'm no longer a foreigner, I'm no longer an alien to God, but I'm a son. And, 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 and women, you're daughters of God. And it's not because of anything you've done, but it's because God just can't get this smile off of His face because He loves you so much. And so He's went to great lengths to redeem you. And the, the thing that you do is respond to that work that He's doing within 
you. That's, that's our part. That is our work in that. And if we, if we fail to realize that God's work uh, in, our, in our conversion, in our coming to Christ comes first, we could take this story about Saul and, and make it about him. We could say, yeah, Saul, what an awesome guy. The hero of this story is Jesus. The Jesus that meets the murderer of his people on the road to Damascus when he's going to drag men and women and kids out of their houses and take them to Jerusalem and try to execute them. That's the kind of grace we're dealing with here. That's the magnitude of it. And so if you're in here today and you're wondering, man, if God only knew what I did last night or last week or, or, or the things that I'm into now, would He even love me? I can tell you, if you stacked it up against Paul, you wouldn't even be close. Saul, rather. If you stacked it up against him, you wouldn't even be close. So I pray that you would hear the love of God that comes through this story today. So let's keep going. Let's look at the second part of the sermon here. Saul's conversion. Here's what we notice about Saul's conversion. And and I've kind of made these points into points that are applicable for us to kind of grab onto. Humanity is opposed to the Gospel from birth. We're adamantly opposed to the Gospel. We're adamantly opposed to needing anyone to do anything from us. Not just Americans, this is all of humanity. We want to be able to get her done on our own, okay? That's what we want to be able to do. Let me ask you a question. Any, uh, any zombie fans in the room? Don't, don't be afraid. I mean, if, you're, if, you're, if you watch all those zombie shows, lift it up there. Be loud and proud. Got to go, oh, there we go, yeah! Fantastic. We got some zombie fans in the room. Now, I've got to be honest, Mike, I just can't get into it. I, I've tried. I mean, I, I try to watch The Walking Dead. or I've tried to get into those shows, and I just can't get into it. And here's the reason why. Now, I don't want you to stop watching zombie shows because of what I'm about to say, but you know, maybe you feel a little guilt. I don't know. So, uh, <clears throat> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. A zombie. What is a zombie? A zombie is a corpse that acts like it's alive, but guess what? It's not. It's not alive. It's a corpse that acts like it's alive, but it's not. It's always seeking to devour and consume without ever really living. Think about that. And I think this is the state and the cry of every human heart to some degree. We're all kind of the walking dead. We're all zombies. That, and, and, and our lives play themselves out in a vast array of manifestations. Our, our deadness, our walking deadness, looks different. For some people, it's materialism. For some people, it's envy, it's greed, it's, it's, uh, it's selfishness. It plays itself out in different ways, but it's all walking deadness. It's all zombie living. But we're still, the, the, the bottom line is this, is that we're still dead without Christ. I mean, I mean Saul thought he was really living, guys. Do, do you know that? Saul thought that he was really living and serving God. I mean, he was a criminal and he was diametrically opposed to the things of God and he, he was doing it with zeal. I mean, listen to this. Let me just read a little bit of the story of, of, of what Saul was up to. Acts seven fifty eight and eight one. if you haven't been with us. Uh, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. That's Stephen. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And Saul approved of his execution. doesn't stop there. Acts 8.3, but Saul was ravishing the church, entering house after house. And he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. If you look in Psalm 80.13, that word for uh, 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 
well, let me read 9, 1 through 2 first. So, so Saul, going on to Acts 9, 1 through 2, but Saul still breathing threats, I mean, that, that's violent language, and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. So what's Saul doing here? He's saying, hey, let me go a little bit outside of my jurisdiction so I can really get these Christians. Just give me a letter so I can go a little bit further out. And so he's going to the farthest reach of his jurisdiction. He has to ask for special permission to go out there. So that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the way of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He is zealous about what he's doing. And, and, and the word for breathing threats in Psalm 80.13 is, is translated in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It, it, it talks about this. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Saul is a monster. He's an absolute disaster of a man. He is a monster of all monsters. And this is the guy that God's chosen to bring the Gospel to the Gentiles? Are you kidding me? This was his plan? This harsh reality. What do you do when you realize you've been God's enemy all along? What do you do? Because I think Saul realizes that. He, he realizes, hey, I've been God's enemy. And I think a lot of times we tend to think that God maybe has frenemies. You know, like He's got friends and sometimes we're His enemies when we sin, but then we're His friends again when we obey. I think we tend to think about God like that. But in the Bible, what we read is that there are two types of people in the world. There are friends of God and there are enemies of God. That's it. And people that are friends of God, they can't go back to enemies because they believe in Jesus. And so we forever have this state of, of friend of God. Let me, let me explain. So Acts 9-4 uh, talks about this idea of enemies of God. And, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus takes this personal. I mean, Saul, Saul didn't like physically persecute Jesus, but he physically persecuted the people of Jesus, the body of Christ. And so Jesus is inhabiting this pain. He's inhabiting this persecution, and he meets Saul on this road. Now, today, what would that sound like to us? Maybe it would sound something like this. Ryan, Ryan. Why are you so indifferent to Jesus? Why are you so indifferent to me? Why can you take me some days and not take me other days? Ryan, Ryan, why does your heart not break for the things that break my heart? Ryan, Ryan, why do you not follow me into the darker places of life? Ryan, Ryan, why do you not let me have that place in your heart? I mean, you give other things that place in your heart, but why don't you let me sit on the throne of your heart? Maybe it sounds different for you. But what would it sound like in that encounter for you if Jesus were to meet you? Paul says this in Romans 5.10 in a letter he writes to the church in Rome. For, while, for if while we were enemies of God, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by it. So there's, there's two kind of places we can, be, we can be enemies of God, we can be friends of God. So our rejection of Jesus is an offense toward God that keeps us as enemies. Everybody got that? It's kind of, it's kind of what happens there. So, so it's not like, oh yeah, me and Jesus are homeboys, you know, but I just kind of do my own thing. I don't, I don't bow my knee to Him. I don't call Him Lord. I don't 
uh, <clears throat> obey the commands that He's given me to do. I just kind of, I'm just kind of cool being at arm's length with Jesus. And then because I live in the South, I can kind of get by with that. It's a real dangerous place to be. In the book of Revelation, when Jesus talks about the church in Laodicea, I think He was talking about the church in the South. You know, kind of this lukewarm church that, that kind of just kind of keeps Jesus in a cool place and kind of interacts with Him when it's convenient. It's a dangerous place to be, friends. Friends of God. Acts 9.17 So Ananias departed and entered the house. He's going. He's obeying the Lord. And he lays his hands on him. And he says something that's beautiful. I, I paused when we read this earlier. Brother Saul. <laughs> Brother Saul. The, Ananias was afraid of this guy you know, a few minutes ago when we were reading, right? I think he's still afraid of him. But his trust and belief in who God is is greater than his, his, his uh, second guessing of Saul's changed nature. He, he trusts who God is. And see, he calls, he, Saul, you're a full brother in the Lord. You're, you're part of the family. You're a co-heir of Christ because Jesus has met you. And he says, the Lord who appears to you appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Spirit. So, hey Saul, you were coming to take me to Jerusalem, bound up, drag my whole family out of here. And now here I am meeting you and laying my hands on you and serving you. John 15.15 No longer do I call you servants, Jesus says, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. Church, that, that, that is what it looks like to be in Christ. We are friends of God. Our status doesn't change when we mess it up. Because we come back to Him in repentance. We come back to Jesus. And the difference between a friend and an enemy of God is what you do with Jesus. It's not what you, how you behave. It's not what your lifestyle looks like. Because when grace meets you, those things change. Some of us take longer to change than others. Amen? <laughs> others of us kind of get it overnight. Doesn't matter. It's God that's working in us and completing His masterpiece within us. Second thing is this humanity is confronted with our enmity toward God. So Acts 9, 6 through 8 is what the, the, the instruction uh, that He gives to Saul. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who are traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. I mean, these guys are confused. They're like, what just happened? I thought we were going to kill these Christians. Now Saul's blind. I mean, what do we do now? So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. I think that's significant. Although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. What a, what a humbling position to be in. Right? You're the guy in charge. You're the one going to get orders to, to increase your range so you can persecute Christians more effectively. And now here you are blind and needing someone to lead you by the hand. Humility precedes true conversion. I've never seen an instance of someone coming to Christ who hasn't first been humbled. You know why? Because if you haven't first been humbled, you'll never come to Christ. You've got to be humbled to come to Christ. To bow your knee to Jesus. That happens to Paul here. Saul, sorry. His, his name changes to Paul. You guys get it. So he's confronted with this reality of spiritual blindness. I think that's why I said that was significant because he opens his eyes and he sees nothing. You know what? 
For the first time, Saul sees his actual reality. He opens his eyes and he sees nothing because he's not been seeing the whole time. He's thought that he's been living, but he's been a zombie. He's been living like a zombie. He's been thinking that he's really living for something, pursuing it with zeal, but he's been blind all along. I don't know what it looks like in your life. I think our blindness and the way that we try to live out of our blindness plays itself out in different ways. But where, how have you been walking in spiritual blindness? What does that look like? And how is, like that, like that lyric of the song we sang, I wrote it down before I stood up here. The sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. You know how rich that lyric is? The sin that promised joy in life led me to the grave. How is the enemy, our, 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 our common opponent, enticing us with things that promise life that aren't real life? Are, those, are there any areas in your life where, where, you're, where you're seeing that kind of crop up? Maybe we need to repent of those things because if, he's not, if, if we're not being led to Jesus, we're being led to the grave. And, and we don't want to go to the grave without Jesus because you know what? We don't get back out of it. How are you being confronted with that reality today? I mean, think about how God confronts Saul with this man named Ananias. I mean, Ananias is an ordinary Joe. I mean, he's just a common dude. I mean, he's kind of afraid of Paul. He's not like a man's man. He's just an, just an ordinary, good, and plain man. And you know what God does? He calls him by name. Ananias. And then we see kind of one of these instances, kind of like when God meets Isaiah in Isaiah 6, and Ananias is like, here I am, Lord, send me. Where do you want to send me to? And then he's like, he breaks the news to him. I want you to go to Saul. Oh, Saul. Like the, the same Saul that's on his way up here. Now. Yeah, yeah, I want you to go to Saul, Ananias. And we see that he's a discerning man. I've heard of this man and the evil that he's done to your saints. So there's, there's, a, there's a cost in me obeying you, God. I'm your son, but there's a, I just want you to know there's a cost. I mean, this could, if you're wrong about his nature changing, this is not going to end out well. I'm basically walking myself into Jerusalem bound. But we notice he's a ready and obedient man. He's ready to roll. He's ready to do this thing. He's ready to go out, uh, whatever it looks like for Jesus. And, and it's because of that, Ananias is one of the, the greatest kind of hidden characters of the Bible. I mean, where would we be today had not Paul bowed his knee to Jesus and started planting churches around the world, taking the Gospel to the Gentiles. We're indebted to, to, to God's Spirit working in Ananias. So have, have, here's my question. Uh, are, are we aware of our enmity toward God without Jesus? <clears throat> are, we, are we aware of that? Are we aware that we're, we're, we're enemies of God and His wrath sits on top of us? I, this, is, this isn't a fun sermon to preach, right? It's hard to hear. That's, I just want, I want, to, I want to shoot you straight this morning. I'm not doing us any good if I don't speak the truth in love here. We, we're enemies of God without Jesus. And, and, uh, and enemies of God uh, don't get to be with God forever. That's kind of the way that it plays out. We spend an eternity away from God because we deserve it. Are we aware of our enmity toward God? Or do we approach God uh, like uh, in, entitled children? Um, approach their father where they think they deserve something because of what they've done and how good they've been or 
or as mercy hopeful servant beggars? Because that's our true nature. Is that, is that when we meet Jesus, we realize that, that we're just begging for crumbs off the table. And th- those crumbs happen to be the greatest feast we've ever seen in Christ. That's what happens when we come to Jesus. We, we, we always reach this point of confrontation when the Gospel comes to us. It doesn't leave us indifferent. We can't just leave Him at arm's length. Uh, we're, we're confronted with the Gospel to either respond in trusting Christ and becoming friends of God, or to respond in rejecting Christ, whether, we're, whether it be through indifference or adamant uh, opposition like Paul, and, and remain as enemies of God. That's kind of the two places that we are. Lastly, as we land this plane, humanity responds through a rejection or an embrace of Jesus. I think sometimes we tend to, we tend to think about this conversion of Saul and say, man, he had this kind of dramatic experience. I didn't really have that experience. So am I really saved? Here's the thing about Saul that we forget, though. In, uh, in Acts 26.14, Saul, Saul is telling his t- testimony. His name changes to Paul in the book of Acts. He tells his testimony two more times in the book of Acts. Did you know that? One of them is in Acts 26. And listen to how he explains his conversion process. He says this, and when... And when we had fallen to the ground, he's talking about being on the road to Damascus, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, speaking to me in my own tongue, speaking right to me, even though I'm outside of Jerusalem, speaking to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then he adds something that is not in Acts 9. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What does that mean? What's a goad? A goad was a sharp stick used to prod typically oxen. To pry them to get them in line. So, <clears throat> you know, sometimes they just need a little, a little tap, a little love tap to kind of get them in line. Other times they needed a they needed a, a stick. You know, they needed to get it taken to them to get them in line so they would go where they want to go. So so God had been meeting Saul all along. It wasn't just this overnight thing. He had been meeting with him. I mean, so what were the goads for Saul? How was how was God showing himself to Saul? Uh, one is this, I don't think that Saul could get Jesus out of his mind. Once he really heard about who Jesus was, he couldn't get him out of his mind. And that is why he was going to such great lengths to eradicate Christians from the face of the earth. He couldn't get him out of his mind. When he woke up in the morning, he just thought, about, I've got to get these Christians out of here because they're Jesus. I can't control them. I don't know what to do with them. I've got to get them off the face of the earth. So I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that happens. I think another goad for Paul was Stephen. He stands there approving the execution of an innocent man who's just preached the most wonderful sermon in the world. And he stands there holding coats so that the people that are stoning Stephen can get a better range of motion as they're stoning him. And that's what was going on. Approving of his execution. You can't undo that, right? You can't, uh, he was responsible for the murder of Stephen. I mean, he was helping out with it. You can't undo that. There are consequences to that. He's probably having nightmares about it. And then there was the likely inner turmoil of his conscience. <clears throat> he was probably a mess on the inside. and He was just trying to church it up and act like he was okay. So what causes Saul's embrace of Jesus as opposed to this visceral opposition that we've seen in him before? What causes that embrace? Saul's heart had been changed. Jesus 
met him on that road. You can read in, in Galatians chapter 1 where I don't have time to get there today, but where he talks about like his conversion and how he received the Gospel and there's no other Gospel than the one that he received and the one he's preached to that church. And he was confronted as an enemy and made a friend of God through embracing Jesus. So what's our response today? If conversion is this act of God's mercy where He meets us, and because He meets us, then we're able to respond favorably toward God? What's your response today? I mean, are you strengthened? Are you, are you encouraged by the fact, Christian, are you encouraged by the fact that it's all God's work and that, that we have that same sure standing? I mean, we were, it's like we were murderers of God's people with Saul. We were right in the same camp with them, but now we're, <clears throat> we're friends of God through the work of Jesus. Or are you still keeping him at arm's length? I want to share a couple of vignettes of stories of folks that have come to faith through the years. One story is from a guy in our church. Uh, he, uh, he grew up in a Christian home and uh, his parents taught him all the great morality of Christianity and, and showed him the way. And, and uh, as he got older, he began to kind of take that faith on for himself and uh, and kind of and kind of rejected it. He didn't really he didn't really want anything to do with it. And this man uh, became a devout atheist. Uh, and it wasn't just like dabbling around in college. It was a long, long time until at the age of thirty six, he had an encounter with Christ, and Christ redeemed him. Think about that. I mean, that's a long time to walk in the darkness. But the scales fell off his fell off his eyes. How about C.S. Lewis? C.S. Lewis's conversion is interesting. He tells it more like a trajectory than this overnight experience. He, he tells it in a couple different ways. He, he talks about riding with his uh, brother Wernie uh, one day in, in the sidecar of his motorcycle. And he says, we were on the way to the zoo. And, and on the way to the zoo, when I got in the sidecar of the motorcycle, I wish we still had those anyway. Those are so cool. When he got in the, the sidecar of the motorcycle, he didn't believe. And when he when he got to the zoo, he really believed in God. And then it gets more clarity. He talks about riding. Uh, Lewis never drove, by the way. Never had a license. Never drove. He was always riding with other people. So he tells another story about when he really came to, to embrace Christ for himself. He said, I was on top of a bus riding up to, uh, to, to Hillsboro. And, and when I got off of the bus, when I got on the bus, I didn't want to follow Jesus. But when I got off of it, I did. So it was a trajectory for him. It was, and, and there's these moments of that, uh, these kind of high points and low points where God met him. And he says, look, it's not really important for me to, to talk about the fact whether I chose God or he chose me. All I know is that God came to me in such a way where, where it was like I had no other choice. I had to follow him because the news was so good of what he offered to me. Or how about John Newton, the guy that wrote the hymn Amazing Grace? He repented and placed his trust in Christ when he was uh, lashed to a ship's wheel in the middle of a storm. Well, that's a conversion story, right? Or how about Jason? Jason is this guy that I met in Indianapolis when I used to do drug and alcohol addiction counseling. I was in jail uh, with him. I'm going once a week. And I remember talking about joy and happiness and being a fruit of the Spirit one day. And I, w I wasn't supposed to talk about Jesus, but what are you going to do? I mean, you ask a pastor to come in, he's just going to do it. So, I was talking to these guys about the fruit of the Spirit, and Jason said, man, 
I would do anything to have that. And I kind of looked up at God. I was like, you kidding me, God? Like, this guy's like begging to become a Christ follower. And so I kind of laid it out for him and he repented and believed Christ right there in the jail cell. Your story, the magnitude of, of how far you came in Christ, you know, it really, your story is your story. I'm reminded of a conversation I had with my wife and we were talking about testimonies and our stories and things like that. And, and she looked over at me and she said, hey look, there's nothing ordinary about a life being raised from the dead. There's nothing ordinary about it. And so the invitation for you today is this. To place your faith in Christ. To, to follow Him. He's been working on your heart. He's been stirring in your spirit. And you can respond to Him. You can trust in Him today. And for the Christian to be to be convinced without a shadow of the doubt that Jesus is real and His love for you doesn't change based on your behavior, that He's here and He's sticking with you to the end. He's going he's gonna to complete that good work that He started in you. And so, uh, I'll be in, in the back of the room during communion today and I would love to pray with any of you to talk about your journey in Christ. Love to have that opportunity. So let's pray together and we're going we're gonna to continue singing and going to a time of taking the Lord's table too. Our Father, we, uh, we don't take this story lightly. Uh, we don't take the fact that, uh, that we are enemies of God. That is hard news to hear. Uh, but it is true news. And, uh, and we need to hear it this morning. That, uh, that that's how good the work of Jesus is. That He turns enemies into friends. He turns strangers into sons. He does all this work through Jesus. And the only thing that matters about our life is what do we do with Jesus? So Father, I pray that You would stir our hearts and our affections anew toward You today. I, Father, I pray that, that new sons and daughters would come into the kingdom through faith and repentance today. I pray You'd do that. I know that there are people that don't follow You in this room. And Father, we don't want to manipulate anyone emotionally, but we do want to offer the good news uh, freely because that's how we've received it. So Father, I pray that you would cause our hearts to respond this morning. It's in the beautiful, matchless name of Christ we pray. Amen.